And why don't we turn to Romans chapter 12 and actually stand for the reading of God's word here. Romans 12 verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Lord, we come to your word, Father, and seeing what it says, Lord, we know that there's more here than it is just ink. We know that there is great meaning that you have here, that you want us to receive. You want us to hide your word in our hearts. The Bible tells us so that we would not sin against you, so that we would be pure. We pray, Lord, that you would help us this morning in the seeing of your word, that your word, uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit, caused us to see you in a greater light. And Lord, that we would give you love, that we would honor you with respect. The desires of our heart, Lord, would be towards and for you. We, we pray, Lord, now speak to us through your word. And grow us and make us more like Christ. May our hearts just be satisfied with you. Thank you for giving it to us, Lord. Each word is precious. Each word powerful. We pray unleash that power into our hearts and through our lives here this morning so that we can, we can uh, know you in a, in a greater way. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated now. Well, it's been about 10 years since we've entered the 21st century. I think we have a bit of a taste of what it's going to be like and we entered it with the residue of the dominant teaching of the 20th century. It is interesting to see what we will do with that teaching. It seems though that the teaching of the 20th century hasn't gone away. It has had its long-lasting effect on us. And in particular has made its way into the church and for the reasons that only Satan in his diabolical ways knows, it is infecting the modern church and especially pulpits across America. That teaching you could sum up with one word, the word humanism. It is a teaching that really elevates man and his own abilities it treats man as though he is not perfect, but rather good. Not, you know, a machine, but, you know, decent. And we even have expressions and sayings, come on, after all, I'm only human. Humanism. It's the teaching from the 1900s that basically says, look, all people have good intentions. Deep down inside, every person has a bit of good, has that kernel, that seed of good, is what humanism teaches. 
And what happens, humanism says, is some might be a bit misguided. And there are lots of reasons for that. And we could, we could get into them if you want. Why we could answer them sociologically. And say, well, I mean, look at the surroundings that a person grows in. I mean, it could be that they grow in in, in, in such a poor area that I mean, they can't help but live that way. Or maybe they've grown up in an abusive home. And you can't help but live that way. Some answer, try to explain uh, bad things of people doing, doing maybe immoral things this way. They'd say, well, you need to look at it physiologically or even psychologically. And understand that, you know, there are all kinds of things going on on the inside. And we all come at it differently. And some of us have uh, some disadvantages that way. And so therefore, we're prone to do certain things. And what people, humanism would tell us, is need, what, what people need is to be told what kind of behavior is acceptable. In other words, what, what the missing key is, is knowledge. That the world is somehow missing some knowledge. Something that they could know that would, ah, that's it. That's how I should live. That's the missing key there. That's the thing that I needed to know. Doing that is bad and will have bad consequences. Ah, so therefore, I just need to stop doing this thing over here and start doing these things over here and pursue this thing over here in life. And so you'll hear things like people that will tell you you need to learn to love yourself and respect yourself more and all such things like that. And all of that basically are, all that basically is is just a splinter of what we can call humanism. In other words, the message was, if you want to change a man, you have to spell out the right behavior. Tell him what he needs to do so that he can fit right into society and stay within the boundaries. And then guess what? Then God will be happy. And who knows? Maybe a good turn will come your way, right? That's humanism. Now you might think that there's no way that that kind of stuff can get, get into the church. In fact, let's make it personal. You might think there is no way that kind of stuff can get into this church. Let me tell you, listen, when we say to one another, or when we parent our children this way, we say to them, stop doing those things and start doing these things. That's just what we do. So easy to just say, ah, don't do that. Do this and end it right there. And all the meanwhile, they're clueless about their hearts, aren't they? Listen, we have no problems being convinced that there's a problem. We know there's a problem. But our answer to getting spiritual life out of a person is basically this. Change your behavior. And let me tell you, beloved, that's nothing different than humanism. That will never work, and it doesn't fit with the gospel, by the way. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, quote, the idea that you can take Christian teaching and then get men and women to apply it, to put it into practice, is, I think, a great denial of the Christian gospel. 
that he explains. It's not what you do that is wrong. It is you who are wrong. And before you can do the right thing, you must be put right. End quote. Yeah. That's the whole, that's the rub. And so this is the reason why parenting fails so gravely is because we're trying to tell our children, do right, do right, do right, do right, when they're not right. As the old saying goes, you can't squeeze blood out of a turnip, you can't squeeze water out of a rock, and you cannot squeeze change out of one who hasn't been what? Changed. You say, why are you telling me this? Because that's the tie to Romans 1 through 11 and chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. That's it. Now we're now to the place in Romans where Paul gets really where he says, okay, here's how you live. This is the live part. This is the, this is the practical stuff. This is what maybe some of us have been kind of, you know, oh, whew, all right. That doctrinal stuff can get so heavy and it's so deep and it's kind of thick and it weighs a little bit on you. And I find myself going, huh, a lot. So this I can understand. Do this, don't do that. All right, this is good. It's the do part of this letter. Or for you, for you who really like, you know, complex stuff. It's going from the indicative to the imperative, okay? So, ooh, all right, you've lost me there. It's going from the what you are like to what you now need to just do. It's where you take all the doctrine from chapters 1 through 11 and you make a life out of it, spiritual living. Now, there are two sides, beloved, and those two sides, there are two sides that, that can't be unbalanced. They have to be balanced. There has to be a togetherness. There has to be harmony between the two sides. The side of knowledge and the side of practice. If you have knowledge but no practice, what do you have there? You've got somebody who is a hypocrite, somebody who is not real. If you have doctrine, all doctrine, but no duty, and you have somebody that is a supposed expert. You have the guy that, in Matthew 23 that Jesus said, um, you know, the things that they say, you know, uh, do, do the things that they say. Hold on to what they, as far as the knowledge part that they have, but don't do what they do. See? Because they don't live this thing out well at all. Because they don't get it. They're not, they're not believing. They're not changed. They're not saved. And then the balance on the other side, if you think that you're doing a practice and you don't need doctrine, I don't need that doctrine stuff. I just want to live. It's just Jesus for me. It's just love. You know, it's all we need is love, theology, and everything's okay and it's happy and I'm, I'm fine. Yeah, but what if I told you that the things that you do are not right? Don't get so personal in, in, in my private life here. I do what I do. All right? You do what you do, I do what I do. So, whoa, wait a minute here. You need doctrine, don't you? So you can see what happens and what life looks like when you get unbalanced in those two, and you've got to bring them back here. And this is what Paul does. Let's never forget, though, that Paul spends 11 chapters on doctrine, and he only spends, what, five or six on, on the practical. Okay? You know why? Because if you get the doctrine, the life is a sort of a duh. You know? It's a bit like that. You know, you kind of go, oh, well, of course. Of course I should live this way, see? So, this is what Paul's done. Now listen, spiritual living isn't do this and do that. We've said that. 
It, it, it is simply this then. It is giving all you have and all you are to God. So you say to yourself, well, if it isn't doing this and doing that, what is it? It is this. It's giving all you have and all you are to God. Give it to Him. Give it to Him. If your life is not your own, you will have no problem with somebody coming up next to you with a Bible open and going, you've got to change your life. It needs to look like this. Okay. Why, 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 why is it so easy for me to say okay? Because my life's not my own anyway. He owns it. It's his. And therefore, if you're going to show me what it needs to look like, what's the problem? No problem, right? You go back and look at the Gospels and you'll see that was Jesus' basic message always. It always was, give all you have, give all that you have and all that you are to God. That's what Jesus' message was constantly. For example, in John 8, you remember this passage here, this interaction. Jesus preaches a message, a real simple message. And it went like this. He said, I am the light of the world. Remember this? He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Okay, there's the message. Now watch this. Verse 30. Many came to, what? Believe in him. Sweet. And verse 31. Right after many came to believe in him, Jesus said this to those who believe. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So why do you see that? I mean, where's the right on, right? They believed, you know? I mean, or where's the celebration? I mean... Jesus' point was that salvation is only for those who have given themselves totally to him. It's as almost as though he is telling them, have you given yourself totally to me? Have you? You believe, but have you given yourself totally to me? In other words, guys, examine yourselves. Make sure that you've come with this understanding. Total commitment. That means a complete surrender, a complete willingness. Here's my life. It's yours. What's the issue? What's the issue there? The issue is his word, his will, what he wants. Your soul attached to his will. Paul said it this way, for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. It's real simple. My life is so simple, Paul says. Not that complex anymore. I Yeah, sure, for the longest time, I was trying to figure out, what's the key to this deal? What's the meaning of life? How does this thing all work? Oh, it's so hard. I mean, I go here, and I go over there, and I, I want to do this, and I figure I would do that, and, and everything would be fulfilled, and I would feel good about myself. And then I realized come to realize by the working of the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel no actually life is all about all or nothing it is a death to your will to your plan to your kingdom death take a look at our passage we're studying and see what's again the key to it all remember chapter 1 through 11 is all the gospel and now Paul's basically saying live it out 
this is what spiritual living is like. If you will, this passage is the, the greatest summary on sanctification in the Bible, on what it is. It really is. Now look at verse 1, and you'll see the key. Look at what it says. Present your bodies. This is actually the, 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 the hub of it. Present your bodies a sacrifice to God. That's basically what he's saying. It's Old Testament talk here. And so he speaks this way. Present your bodies a sacrifice to God. Offer yourselves, basically he says, to God like an animal on an altar, just like the priest did. And you remember the priest brought that animal, and it was spotless, and he said, and he, here, or they, they brought it to the priest, the people did, here, here's my animal. This is symbolic of the fact that God demands death for sin, and I believe that he can't forgive me of my sins. And so they brought the animal, here it was, put it on that altar, slit the throat, blood came out, blood was, played, was, was poured out on the altar, and that thing, of course, died on that altar and was symbolic that way. And here now, he says, no, don't bring an animal, don't bring anything but what? You. And put yourself on that altar. He says, uh, present your bodies, a sacrifice to God. Bodies, the word bodies, the idea of bodies is all of you. Your whole body, the whole thing. Head to toe, right? That word present is a priestly word. And, and you put all this together and Paul is saying, this, this is what spiritual living is like. It's a complete surrendering of ourselves. And this is why discipleship. You know what, what's, what discipleship is about? Parents, let me help you out. You're saying, how do I disciple my child? Can I help you? You come along to that child and you help them see that they're still holding on to themselves. And until they let go of themselves, until they understand that it is a complete surrendering of themselves, then they haven't got it. They don't get it. They haven't gotten the gospel. Because once they do, they will understand, ah, I must give myself. Must. And that's the message every day, isn't it? Yeah. Parents, understand that for yourselves. <laughs> Remember your life is the meaning that the child is taking away from everything you teach. It's a complete surrendering of every part. And that's why you can't just say, okay, now here are the rules, right? I mean, this is the key to any amount of obedience that you would do. And it's this, offer you. And remember all those Old Testament, Testament passages where, where God said that he wasn't pleased with their sacrifices? I mean, read Isaiah 1, okay? Now, they had the behavior. They had the external actions. I mean, they made the appearance. They came with the animals. They were doing it all the time. They seemed committed. It looked like they were religious. I mean, come on. They had the tag. They were doing the stuff. They were bowing down. Maybe many of them did their prayers every day in the right form. See, They seemed committed. It looked like they were religious. They had the circumcision. They had the animal. They came to the priest. But what did God want? He wanted their hearts. He wanted them. Give me you, he said. 
So the point is, is that God calls us to offer ourselves like priests offering a sacrifice, except we're the sacrifice. And so he calls us to have a total commitment to spiritual living. He's set us free to that. It's the whole deal. So how do you live a spiritual life? How are we supposed to live this Christian life? Four crucial ways. We started last week, first of all, by offering God a delivered soul or redeemed, however you want to say it. Verse 1. How do you come to God? How do the priests in the Old Testament come to God? Listen, with the blood of the required animal, this is the reason why we said you can't come to God with your commitment to just do better or some renewed behavior. You can't do that. Why? We'll look at what it says. It says... I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the, what's it say? Mercies of God. Paul says, I urge you. I, I call, I'll call you alongside of me. I exhort you. I beg you, if you will. I, I plead with you. I, some, I think, say even beseech. That's kind of, you know, we don't really use that word today. I mean, you know, I beseech you, make your bed, right? I mean, can you imagine that with your child? You just, we just don't talk that way. But this, the idea is a, it's a passionate urging. Come alongside. Come on. Right here. What in, in Paul is saying, uh, by the many mercies of God. Notice, not singular, not the mercy of God. I, I say that because remember, we saw mercy of God in, in chapter 5. We saw mercy of God in chapter 9. We saw mercy of God in, in the very end of chapter 11. But here... He gets comprehensive. Mercies. Many of them. So what Paul has in mind are, are all those mercies in, in the first 11 chapters, right? That, that's what those chapters were all about. All those mercies. I mean, you go through the, the first three and what do, you, what do you feel like? Pretty wretched, don't you? I mean, you, you feel exposed for who you really are. You see, you're an, you're an enemy of God. So what do you need? Deliverance. You know what kind of, you say, well, you know what kind of deliverance? Mercy. Merciful deliverance. And what God does is he offers you not just mercy, but mercies. And so, you know, he teaches about forgiveness of sins. And he teaches about righteousness. And we've received that. And we've received grace. And we've received peace and love and the Holy Spirit and so forth. And we receive reconciliation. And we receive new life. And on and on it goes. It's all there. Unbelievable amount. I mean, I, I've had to cut, really, I've had to cut this short because I thought, well, I would just be preaching 1 through 11 all over again, you know. You can go read it yourself. It's there. Mercies everywhere. It's all mercies. But, you know, another thing, too, I was thinking about this this, this morning as I was meditating on this, this, this passage. It's amazing to me that God can have this kind of mercy on us, all of, all of those mercies. Now, here's the reason why I say it's amazing. This, this Greek word is, is the word oiktirmos. It's, it's it's the, the usual word for mercy is helios. This word is not that word. It's a different word. It's a, it's a word that has to do with, uh, oftentimes it was connected to the word for bowels. In fact, I, I can't remember the verse. There's a, a verse, in the, another verse in the Bible that says literally the bowels of mercy. Of, of mercy. And it uses this word with another word, splankta, is what it is in the, in the Greek. But this is not that word. So... But you put them together, and it's bowels of mercy. It's, in other words, deep, deep uh, affection, deep, deep uh, uh, passion and compassion and pity. 
So why, why does it have to be like that? Well, I think a couple of reasons why. I mean, number one, obviously, I think it helps to, to, to demonstrate the, the love, the compassion of God. But I think the other thing is this. It tells you a little something about you. When God pities you at that point, we must really be bad, huh? We, we must be really in a bad spot. And think about it. If it costs God his son, we really must be bad off sinners. And he shows mercy this way, and mercy's great affection. Not just pity, but longing, affection, literally tears of joy, greatly moved, lavishing it all. It reminded me, I think recently we preached in Zephaniah 3, and so it reminded me of Zephaniah 3, uh, 17, the Lord's in your midst, victorious warrior. He will exalt over you with joy. He'll exalt, sing. He will sing over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. You know what that is? That's the mercies of God. See? That's what that reconciliation and that peace and all of that just lavish. The rich graces of God just lavished over you. And it is though he's basically saying, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by all of that that God is singing about over you now, come that way. Come with that kind of salvation. If you don't come with that kind of salvation, you, you, all your acts of service are just nothing. All that pity. Very important also that you see the word therefore. See the word therefore? It's based, the therefore points back to the, to the gospel of chapters 1 through 11. Based on that gospel, based on all that was taught about how to be right with God, justification before God, those many mercies I want you to offer yourself. And so you come with a delivered soul, with a redeemed soul. 1 through 11 is all doctrine, it's all knowledge, and 12 through 16 is all practice. And you know what this tells me? That knowledge isn't enough, right, as we talked about. The answer then to spiritual living isn't go read and learn, the, you know, these doctrines and everything else would just fall into place. See? That's not the answer. That's why it's so important, so important that you have people that come alongside you and bring that accountability to you and come and say, look, I'm concerned about the way you live your life. And you might say to yourself, well, I come to church. Isn't that enough? Come on. I'll never forget a conversation I had with a gal. I was attending a college and, and I had come out of this class and she saw me and said, hey, I recognize you. You know, I was leading worship at this church and and she said, you're the guy that's up there leads worship. I said, oh, really? Have you been to that, you've been to that church, or the church I attend? It was a church of like a thousand, so I didn't, I mean, you, you could maybe not know somebody, you know. So, oh, I've never seen you before. Well, yeah, it's only because I've gone a couple of times. I said, well, you know, she asked, tell me a little bit about your church. And I asked, well, I asked her, what are you looking for in a church? Well, you know, I just kind of want a church where I can just kind of go and not too much commitment in that. And, I said, well, in our, our church, the great thing about our church is that, you know, you'll, there's, it's not just teaching, but there's fellowship to hold you accountable to that teaching. She said, see, that's the point. I don't want to go to a church like that. I just want to fall through the cracks, she said. I've never heard, heard anybody tell me that right out. I said, you, and you think that's a good thing? She said, yeah. She was honest that way. Yeah, that's a good thing. I don't want anybody to know me. Oh. Wow. I don't think you're a believer. <laughs> Can't be. I mean, why would you why would you want to be secretive 
Why would you want to be hidden? Don't you understand that God sees all and these people understand that about God and they want to hold you accountable only because out of love. Well, spiritual living is, that's, that's what we've come to. So you come, you come and you understand knowledge is not everything. It's not all about just learning doctrine and everything falling into place. It's got to be learning doctrine so that doctrine can permeate its way and make its changes in our life, right? Let me illustrate this here. It's not surprising to find out a doctor can, be, can also be an alcoholic. That, that's happened before. Huh. Probably more times than we care to, to know. And you might say to yourself, well, doesn't he know what alcohol does to the body, to the liver? Yeah, he knows. He knows, but he still drinks. Right? So why? Is he just dumb? Well, in a sense, yes. You know, but in another sense, no, he knows. It doesn't stop him, though, from drinking, does it? No. Why is that? Because he needs change, not just knowledge. See? Where can he get that change? Well, he can't change himself, can he? Only one place for true, lasting deliverance. Mercies of God. The mercies of God. All right, so we start there. Let's look at the second one here. Secondly, you come by offering God a devoted or dedicated body. Not only a delivered soul, but a dedicated body. He says there, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, once you give your soul to the Lord, the next thing is simply a, a natural sense. You give him your what? Your body. What is God wanting? He's wanting your body, your whole body, all of you. And by the way here, I believe he has a reference to the physical body. That's what he means when he says your body. Present your bodies. Present your physical body. Look what Paul says next. To present your bodies. One, one author put it this way. Hand over yourselves like slaves. Hand over yourselves like slaves. You know, the, by the way, we mentioned this last week, but everyone's a slave. You're either a slave to sin or a slave to Christ, but you are a slave. And so the beauty about becoming a Christian is you now have the opportunity to voluntarily give yourself willingly to the Lord as his slave. See? You know the other thing? He is a good master, isn't he? Oh. You know, so I always find it fascinating that way back when uh, in our nation when... Uh, finally slavery was, was beginning to be abolished, that there were some slaves that were set free that didn't go anywhere. I find that fascinating. You know why? Because they said, well, I don't know where else to go. My master's good. He's good. He takes care of me. We've got a good relationship. Probably those masters were believing masters, huh? I think to myself, wow, we have the best master. We're a slave. Slaves. Slaves to him. And I think you think of yourself that way and you'll have no problem offering up your body to serve him. Here's my body to do whatever you want, Lord. 
Obviously, this is not easy to do, beloved. It has to be a work of the Spirit in your life. It has to be. We don't do this naturally. But the point is, your body is not for you anymore, right? Now, why does Paul say that? Why is it important to mention our physical bodies? Well, let me give you at least two reasons. First, there must be some kind of connection to our bodies in sanctification. I mean, this is a sanctification verse, and he's talking about the physical body here. So there's got to be a connection between this body and sanctification. Let me say it a different way. In other words, it really does matter to the Lord. Your, your body really does matter to the Lord as well as the soul. Okay? It's not a deal where you, your, 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 you're causing your body to waste away, and yet you know, your soul is just fine, and you say to yourself, well, it's just the soul that matters anyway. See? That's a lie. There's a connection between our physical bodies and sanctification. In other words, God wants you, he wants us to bring the whole offering, not just the soul, but bring the body too. You're to, you're to get this whole body to be given to the Lord for whatever he wants. And so therefore, we come with the head, don't we? What's that? includes the brains and the eyes and the ears and the mouth. See? Offer that to the Lord. Offer that to the Lord. Offer your, your, your eyes. Offer your hands to the Lord. I want to use these hands for you, Lord. Ephesians 4 mentions stealing. And then it says, rather than stealing, use your hands for, for things that, that honor the Lord. Yeah. Offer it to the Lord. Offer your stomach to the Lord. Philippians 3 speaks of being ruled by our stomachs. And he wasn't just talking about men there, although you kind of get that sense there. Being ruled by the stomach, right? Remember 1 Corinthians 15? It's a chapter on, the, on, on future resurrection. But the reason why Paul wrote it was because there were some people saying that the body just did not matter. And so what he, what he was trying to do was, was prove to them and show them, guys, the body matters. The Lord someday is going to resurrect and, and, and grant you a, a new body using that old body, just changing it. You know, you, sometimes you'll see here people, and I think, we can, some, I think we get a little confused about these type of things. I mean, you'll hear people say, well, this is the reason why I don't believe in cremation. Because, you know, there's going to be the, the Lord's going to resurrect the body. So, so, well, really, you think you'll have a, you know what happens when it gets in that box <laughs> after a long time? See, it's cremation, except just in a box, see? So, I mean, I, you know, that's, you're missing the point here, right? But I tell you what, the body does matter to the Lord from the standpoint of what you do with it, right? <clears throat> Paul's point was that there will be a resurrection that will include our bodies, and therefore our bodies matter to the Lord. Let me give you another example. 1 Timothy 4. We're going to be studying this here pretty soon in our flocks. huh? There was a false teaching going around there. and Basically, uh, here's what it was. Basically, don't get married and stay away from certain foods, is what they were saying. Don't use your body for marriage, they were saying. And also, you've got to eat the certain foods. Why? Because if you do that, you're going to be more spiritual, was the point. Huh, really? So it's, so it's that simple, huh? You just do this and don't do that, and you're, you're just spiritual. 
Your bodies are going to be preserved and made more holy, they were trying to tell you. But Paul says, look, you don't get the connection between holiness and the body. You think that the anatomy becomes sinful or gets holy by what you do to it, of food and all that kind of stuff. But that's not true. And then in verse 8 he says, yes, it's good to take care of the body, but don't forget that godliness is more important. And get the connection there. Because we can read that and go, oh, well, wait a minute. So it doesn't matter about the body. No, that's not what he's saying there. What he's saying is this. Understand the connection between the body and the soul, which is this. That you would use that body as an instrument, or as a slave, to accomplish the godliness that the Lord wants. It's all in the offering of that body. The body is just a tool, just an instrument. The Lord wants you to use it as an instrument. Remember like Romans 6 said? For righteousness. Second reason you offer your body to God, listen, because that's the only place where sin now exists for the believer. Because, it, because of your battle with sin, that's why. That's why. You've got you've to make the battle include your physical body. You have to. Now, sometimes that body is called the flesh in the Bible. But that's the only place where sin now exists. The soul is redeemed, but what's not redeemed? The flesh, right? The body. Colossians 3, 5. Therefore, put to death the members of your earthly body. Literally, Paul says, kill them. Strangle them. That's very, very picturesque. Very picturesque if you understood the Greek terms there. He is really saying... There's got to be, you, when you think of your body, you need to think of it in, in terms of death. Now, again, he's not talking about Roman Catholic, kind of the beating the body, literally. He's not talking about uh, uh, you know, walking on shards of glass or uh, praying on your knees for you know, 15 hours or any weird extreme things like that. He means bring that body, bring all the members of the body under the mastery of the Lord. Romans 6, don't let sin reign in those members, right? How's that work? Romans 8, 12, we're under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, he's talking about the physical body there, you will live. That's how you offer your bodies to God. And so the body's useful to the Lord, and that's that's where the sin is. And, and so there there's the need to offer this body to the Lord. In other words, you have you noticed that, you know, when you go autopilot, the body doesn't do what the Lord wants? <laughs> have you noticed that? So I'm just gonna let the body just kind of go for a little bit. Guess where it's going? Huh. Yeah, not where not where you really want it to go. And then you say to yourself, well, how did I get there? Well, autopilot doesn't work, see. Constant need of attention, constantly, constantly. It's not like the airplanes of today where you've got the, you know, that mostly are computerized and the pilot is able to, you know, read, uh, you know, the, you know, war and peace between, you know, New York City and you know, wherever, you know. Oh, it's time to land, you know what I mean? It's, you know, we'll, we'll do a little work here. I don't want to make being a pilot that easy, but I'm telling you, 
autopilot. That's not the way it is with our, with our, with our body. Constant need of attention. Get those hands on the, on the little, you know, the control panel there, and don't let go. Full attention, constant attention. You can't live at that level, beloved. There's, there's no spiritual living in an, in an autopilot sort of way. So now look at look what Paul says in the rest of the verse 1. He says, present your bodies, notice, a living, he says three things here, and actually a fourth, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Three things here qualify this bodily sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable. Right, now you need to see these things with that word sacrifice. So the word sacrifice is kind of set aside, set apart over here, and then you have these three words that, that really point to sacrifice. Now there are so many today that want to offer the Lord a little. They want to offer the Lord enough, right? Just enough to, to get by. Just enough to look like you're spiritual, right? I think I did all I need to do here. I'm all done, right? This is, uh, this is, this is good. This is good enough. It's good enough. Look, I had good intentions, all right? I had a bad day, a little bit grouchy on the inside, so I'm kind of just, just giving you, right? And we, we all do that. <laughs> I mean, I'm not telling on you. I'm telling on me too. You know, you can, you, you do, by the way, and so many times you do, you do that so you can get back to the entertainment, don't you? The entertaining of our, of our, of ourselves. That's not the sacrifice here. Let's look at it. First, it's a living sacrifice. This implies, when he says living sacrifice, it's one that lasts. This is different than the Old Testament sacrifice. The Old Testament sacrifice came, it was killed, and you had to keep doing that, but you don't have to do that anymore. We ourselves are a living sacrifice, one that's alive, one that's constant, one that's all the time. The purpose is an ongoing one. It's not a one-time thing. It's not like the animal there that was burned up. Okay. So it's a living sacrifice. It's also a holy sacrifice. And that word means to be set apart. It means to be dedicated. The idea is to bring under full submission. The idea is reserved. You know, you go to the store and you see the thing that you, you want to get and you have the money and you pull it out and you ask for the item, but the clerk says, oh, you can't have this one. Why? Well, it's reserved. It belongs to someone else. That's the picture. It's reserved, okay? And so you're reserved for the Lord. You know, the world, by the way, beloved, has its price. And it comes along and it says, I like that one. Well, you can't, I mean, when we says live as a holy sacrifice, what we're basically telling the world is you can't have we're reserved for another master, see. And by the way, it's willing to, to buy up whatever you have. But like the clerk, you have to tell it, I'm sorry, this body here is reserved for the master. He's already purchased it. Forget it. And then it needs to be an acceptable sacrifice. See that third word there? What's that mean? I think the question here is like the one in the Old Testament with the offerings there. Are you bringing an offering that is unspotted and truly represents what the master wants? Listen to me. Let me say it a different way. Are you 
bringing an offering that satisfies the master? Are you bringing something that he'll be pleased with? Ephesians 5, I think it's verse 10, always learning or trying to learn what pleases the Lord. Always trying to learn what pleases the Lord. Are you doing that? Is it a half-hearted sacrifice? And not a totally committed sacrifice? It doesn't represent total devotion? Or are we trying to be like the people of Malachi 1 with our offering of ourselves to the Lord? You remember that? Malachi 1.6. Here's the situation. They, they were, you got these people, and this, by the way, this is just 400 years before Christ. And so the Lord knows what they're doing with their offerings, and they were not bringing, they weren't really being honest with their offerings that they were bringing. And he, he says, if I'm a father, where's my honor? Verse 6. He says, Let's, now picture me as a human father. You're not, even, you're, you're not even honoring me as a human father, he says. You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. They were bringing sacrifices that were defiled. They, they, they weren't the best. They, they were saying to the priest, here's our sacrifice. And it wasn't, the, it wasn't the best of what they had. It wasn't really a spotless lamb. Some of it might have been diseased. So why are they doing this? Well, it's possible that they maybe even just picked up some dead animal along the way or whatever. But they weren't giving the Lord the best of what they had. Verse 8, Malachi 1.8, But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Another, that's why he says, I mean, you're not even honoring me as a, as a human father. You... Would the governor be happy knowing that you're giving him the, you know, the worst? Not at all. Would he receive you kindly? God makes a penetrating point here, beloved. You would never take that offering and give it to the governing authorities to pay for your taxes. So why are you bringing it to me for me to accept it? Why? You see, the offering represents your heart. And that's what the Lord was telling them. And we need to look at what we do with our bodies too. What's your service like? Are you offering yourself in a total way, in a complete way? It's interesting. The word acceptable means well-pleasing. It means uh, satisfying. God wants your whole life, all of you, and that's what he is satisfied with. That's the point. That's what he's satisfied with. That's why I said it's an all-or-nothing sacrifice. God is satisfied with the sacrifices of total commitment, a commitment to be pure, a commitment to love others and care for them and help them, a commitment to preach the gospel, a commitment to have fellowship with other believers. He is satisfied when you make your bodies do those kinds of things. You say, oh, but it's so hard to always attend things and always read and always pray and always care for people. It's so hard. Well, you need to look and ask yourself, is God getting your best? Or is he getting the lame, the blind, the reserves, the leftovers from you? Is it just leftovers for him? God's not satisfied with it any less than your best. Hebrews 13, 15, I think, says it well when he says this. 
Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. Listen to this. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. God's happy. God is satisfied. And so you offer all the parts. Your eyes, Matthew 5 says. Don't gaze at another woman, he says in Matthew 5. But keep your eyes where they need to be. Keep your eyes straight ahead, right? Your tongue, James 3, verses 5 through 6. You know, you, it, can, it can get into such trouble. And he says, no, offer that tongue up. Rather than in gossiping ways and in slandering ways and in speaking foolishness, offer your tongue up for praise and edification. 1 Peter 2.11, squeeze out the lust of the flesh of that body by separating the desires from the body for evil, for lawlessness. Separate it from that to be a body that is for the Lord. Now what's that bodily offering look like? End of verse 1, what's he say? Your spiritual service of worship. Service of worship is one word, it's latreia in the Greek. It means a priestly sacrificial offering service at the temple. Real sacrificial here. Real Levitical, if you will. The whole act is filled with reverence and seriousness and fear and is for worship. Then notice the word spiritual, logikos, where we get the word logic from. It has to do with the reasoning, with being rational. It makes sense, he says, to offer the Lord your body this way. He made it. He purchased your salvation. And this word has an internal focus to it. It's not an external deal. In other words, he's not saying make your body do all kinds of forms and external things. What he's saying is make your body with the right motives go and do what pleases the Lord. Do that. One thing before we hit the last two points for this morning. We have to watch out, beloved. We're so prone to use our bodies in one of three ways. One way we use our body is we just say, yeah, it just doesn't matter. Who cares? It doesn't matter. It's the spirit that really matters. That's all. So who, who cares? But that's not what Romans 12 says. Secondly, some of us use our bodies in a legalistic way. Colossians 2.16 speaks this. We, we, we kind of, we use it in a way where we say, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, and you do those things and you're spiritual. Or you don't do these things and you're spiritual. Think you're holy because of it. And so you make rules for that body. A third way not to use your body Third way that people are prone to use their body, that is, you worship it. Like the Greeks, you adore it. You pamper it. You make it attractive. You make the body attractive instead of Christ. Instead of Christ. Can people see Christ by the way you handle your body? That's the way you look at your body. All right, so that's the second offering. Let's look at a third offering here. By offering God a renewed mind. 
verse 2. He says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, what's a commitment to spiritual living look like? First, offer your body, excuse me, offer God your redeemed soul. You believe Jesus forgave you. He imputed his righteousness to you. And those are mercies, and you bring that to God. Only way to get to God. Secondly, you demonstrate that commitment to Christ by offering your body. Here's my soul. Here's my body, Lord. So now watch this. You have to live this life, right? How are you going to live it practically? What are you going to do? What, what does your body do when it gets there? Well, there's going to be pressures to pull you away from God. What do you need to do? You need to do this. You offer him your mind. That is a renewed mind. Offer to him a mind that has been renewed. Listen carefully. If the Lord can change your thinking, then he'll change the way you live. If the Lord changes your thinking, he will change the way you live. But on the same count, if something besides God can influence your thinking, then your life will look more like the old one, won't it? Look at verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world. And then he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There are two sources for influence when it comes to your mind as believers. One is the word, and the other is the world. See that word world? It's not the usual word cosmos. Cosmos means literally an order, an arrangement of order, a connection, a relationship between one thing and another thing that's orderly, right? Two shoes that look alike, two socks that look alike, right? There's order there, right? It's the word, in fact, we get the word cosmetics from it. And the whole idea of cosmetics is to put, make things attractive and orderly so that there's a great relationship between colors and all that kind of stuff, okay? That was for the guys, because, you know, yeah. All right. Now, you got this word, the usual word's cosmos, but that's not the word here. This is the word aeon, or aeon, if you want to pronounce it that way. And it's the word that's usually translated in the New Testament, ages. I don't know why here it's translated world, but it, ages is really the, a better translation, better understanding. Galatians 1.4 helps us with it. Jesus came and gave himself for our sins to deliver us out of this pre present evil age, the aeon. That's our word. It means the age, the thoughts of the day. Now, in order to really give you some insight into this word, let me, let me quote a few guys here so that you can get it. The word aeon, you have to think, probably I suppose the best word maybe that can uh, help you with this one is the word culture. The culture of the day. Right? Or you can even use the word trend to help you uh, understand what this word is getting at. R.C. Trench says this, The age is the floating mass of thoughts, opinions, Maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations at any time in the world. There are tons of passages out there that help to explain what he was just saying or to illustrate it. First John 2, remember verses 15 through 17 where he says, Do not love the, th the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What's the world? Verse 16 says, The lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, right? 1 Corinthians 7.31, also another helpful, he says, there he says, the form of this world is passing away. See? 
And that's a great verse because that verse is speaking to singles. People that want to be married, that aren't married yet, who may have this deceitful thought that, oh, if I just get married, everything will be better. But what he's trying to say is, don't hang on to this world. The form of it's passing away. Don't be attracted to this. James 4.4, 4, anyone loves the world, he's an enemy of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world is blind in our minds, and so forth. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives another, some other insight into this. He says, quote, life, here, here's the aeon, the, the age. Life as it is thought of, organized and lived apart from God, without being governed and controlled by Him. And then he says this, life and activity which, as the result of the fall, is controlled by the devil, the outlook, the way of living, which is not only apart from God, but is positively controlled by the devil. So let's, let's, let's put it together here this way. It really is the current opinion of the populace, if you will. The current opinion of the masses. If you will, it's, it's really, uh, if you want to know what, well, what's, the, if I just only knew what the world looked like, well, the media will help you. Newspaper, magazines, News anchors, they're all going to help you with what the, what's, what's the, what, what the world is saying, what the world is all about. It's the current opinion of the day on how to live. It's the mass of people telling us what's important, whether it's what's important to wear, what's important to do, what's important to listen to, what's important to be involved in, to reason, to think, and so forth. Teenager, teenagers, anything you can identify the word cool with, Right? That's probably the world telling you that. Right? Now, keep in mind, the Lord's not calling us to walk around in bags, okay? You know, all kind of frumpy-like, you know? But that's not spiritual living either. Okay? But the idea here is this, this age that, that has a voice and it's us taking our P's and Q's from the general populace and listening to them and not listening to God. Because there's something more than just simply wear this, listen to that. Why should I wear this? Why should I listen to that? When you believe the why, you have just bought the world's message, right? In a few weeks, there's going to be a Super, Super Bowl. And you know, the, you know what's amazing about the Super Bowl? Not the game. I mean, it's... Massive amounts of people will watch it. They have no clue about football. They don't care about football. You want to know what they're watching it for? The ads. The ads. Boy, have they done a great job in trying to lure and hook, right? We have something to sell. You're going to sit around and eat junk food and watch us? Sweet. Well, we're going to tell you our message. Here it is, right? 1 John 2 tells us that the spirit of the, what the spirit of the age would be interested in. You know what, the spirit of, what, you know what they're interested in? Lusting after things that appeal to the flesh and pleasure. Lusting after things that appeal to your wants. That which makes you feel unsatisfied. See? You're unsatisfied? Here. This will help you. You say, well, that didn't help me this year. Oh, no problem. We got a new one. This will help you this year. It's... 
It's uh, lusting after success, attention for you being you, boasting the pride of success. And Paul says, don't be conformed to the spirit of the age, to the way the age thinks. Don't be shaped by it. Don't be patterned into its mold. Fascinating word, conformed. We get our English word schematic from it. It meant the act of assuming an outward expression that does not come from within. Putting on an act, in other words. John MacArthur helps in understanding this word conformed. He says, quote, Don't masquerade wearing the spirit of the age which is inconsistent with what's really in you. And then he says this, Don't wear the mask of the world. That's what the idea of being conformed is. It's to wear the mask of the world. The world says, here, put this on. This will help. And all the meanwhile, it's just an image thing that distracts or diverts people from seeing the you, the soul. Kenneth Wiest is a Greek scholar. Uh, he mostly works with just Greek translation and stuff like that. He says this regarding this verse. This is how he translates it. This is, this is uh, 12 2, Romans 12 2. Stop assuming an outward expression that does not come from within you and is not representative of what you are in your inner being, but is patterned after this age. But change your outward expression to one that comes from within and is representative of your inner being by the renewing of your mind. End quote. Isn't that good? Very helpful. When he says change your outward experience, he's simply giving the meaning behind the next word, transform. So you have the word conform, and you have the word transform. Don't be conformed in this world to this age, to what it's trying to tell you how to be and live and look like, but be transformed. And it's a mind thing. It's a mental thing. Now, the word transform is where we get our English word metamorphosis. Like the butterfly, it means to change your outward appearance. Now, what I love is, is really amazing to me. The world, is, it's, a, it's a battle for your, really it's a battle for your body, when you get your mind and your body. The world is saying, look this way. God is saying, no, look this way. Who should we listen to? And when he says, look this way, he doesn't mean put on robes and, you know, you know, kind of make sure your hands are in this position all the time or wherever you go, you know, and, uh, you know, make it, make it seem like you got a halo around the, around the head. That's not the look. Remember Jesus in Matthew 17 with three disciples? He transfigured himself right before them and it changed, it says his appearance changed and it was glowing and he was white and he was glorified. That's the same word that he uses there, by the way, metamorphosis. He let them see his glory, a preview of what he was, what was coming. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.18, same word here. This is what our lives look like as believers from now on. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. That is the word, transformed, just as from the Lord. And so here is the work being done by the Spirit to change us so that we radiate God's glory. That's the whole point. So how does this happen? How can you change your look? How can you renew your mind? That's the second influence when it comes to your mind as a believer. Get the word in you. That's how. You have to know the word. You have to let it dwell in you richly. By the way, both words are passive in the Greek. Meaning that there's a, 
there's two influences here. And so you have this outside coming in type of thing. And so you have the world and their thinking and it enters into your thinking. And then you have the word where God changes you through it. And the whole idea is, you know why, by the way, you spend time in the word and letting the word dwell in you? To change your thinking. That's why. That's the whole deal there. Have you noticed the more time you spend in the word, the more that really does happen. You're thinking you're just a whole new outlook. All right, let me give you the last point here. Fourth. By offering God a submissive will. A submissive will. All right, now you offered God a redeemed soul. You offered him a dedicated body. You offered him a renewed mind, not last. That you're thinking, now that your thinking is away from the world, offer him your, your will. Submit to his will. That's how you do that. Look at what it says. That you may prove what the will of the Lord is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. When your life shows his will to be those things, good, acceptable, and perfect. His will is his word. And so when he says prove, what he's saying is show through your life that his will is good and acceptable and perfect. Show it by submitting to his will. Prove that you are giving all of you to him by aligning yourself with his will. That's the idea. Christian life, beloved, is the giving up of your will for God's will. I've heard, I've heard uh, a good pastor friend of mine say this, and I think it's so true. We don't get caught up with saying, oh, if I only knew what God's will was for my life. Because so oftentimes we don't get by this statement. That we'll never know God's will until we're, what? In God's will you got to be in God's will first. I don't go out there seeking after it because my greatest work, my greatest aim, my greatest pursuit is simply to be in His will. How about we start with His revealed will first? No great mystery there with how He wants me to live my life. How about you start with those first three points? Offer Him a redeemed soul in, a, you know, in your body, a dedicated body, in a, your mind be renewed you focus on those first three offerings and this one will just flow out and listen beloved you won't have to look for God's will you won't have to fear God's will you'll be in God's will you'll be living God's will John Henry Newman said this in a poem I was not ever thus nor prayed that thou shouldst lead me on I love to choose and see my path but now lead thou me on I loved the garish day and spite of fears. Pride ruled my will. Remember, not past years. Pride ruled my will. That's the way it used to be with me, he says. Now I want your will, Lord. Horatius Bonar said, said it this way. Thy way, not mine, O Lord, however dark it be, Lead me by thine own hand. 
choose out the path for me. This is a man who has submitted to the Lord's will. And he lives this way, his life that way. So as we conclude here, Jesus demanded not reformation of behavior, but transformation of character and life. Come back to it. We're not offering, we're not seeking just change your behavior. No, no, no. We're telling ourselves and our children and one another, offer your life. Offer your life to God and offer it this way. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, we start with a new way of thinking, and when we think in a new way, we will act in a new way. Thinking controls action. That's right, Proverbs 23, 7. So what's that kind of living look like in the context of a church, you might ask? Well, we're going to spend the rest of our time studying that very thing. Chapter 12, verses 3 through 21. So we're going to spend a while looking at that now in the, but I tell you what, you need to say to yourselves, you need to, to really make a commitment to be verses 1 and 2 so that then you can live out verses 3 through 21 in this context. And you know, we'll be able to look at verses 3 through 21 and say, wait a minute, you're not living this way. Could it be that you're not offering yourself to God? Yeah, you go right back, don't you? Back to verses 1 and 2 to see that. All right, well, let's pray. Lord God, you have given us your word and it is rich and so good, Lord. Father, so many of us maybe have been highly convicted. I know I was and just thinking to myself, wow, I don't, I don't consciously spend my time offering myself this way, Father, and, and how I need to and how I desire to, Lord. And I pray you would just keep working with me to be this kind of man, Father. I pray for the rest of the body of Christ here, that very thing, Lord. Help us, Lord, to offer ourselves to you, not only our souls, but our bodies this way, Lord, and our mind, and, Father, even the will. Oh, Father, how many times, Lord, it comes down to a resisting of, I, I just want my way. And how evil, how wicked, that I would let the body rule in such a way. Thank you, dear Father, for sending Jesus Christ. He is all good and all glorious and all joy and all pleasure. And I thank you for him. And I pray that our hearts would be lighted up, that we would be encouraged to follow him and love him and seek him and to know him. Thank you, Father, for giving us this hope that we, we don't have to capitulate to give in to the world and its thinking. Help us, Lord, to identify those areas, Father, where the world is trying to put pressure on us and take us away from Christ. And we would confess that and come back to just offering ourselves to you. We love you and praise you and ask you to do this work for your glory and the good of your name. In Jesus' name we pray.